You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and good morning. I'm Libby Casey, senior news anchor here at the Washington Post Live Moments team. Thank you all for joining us for this essential event about diversity in STEM. And I am so excited to be joined by Sandra Kaufman. Sandra, thank you so much for being here. Deputy Director of Astrophysics at NASA. Welcome to the Washington thank Post. Thank you so much, Libby. It's very nice. Pleasure to be here. Now, we want to hear about your personal journey that took you from Costa Rica uh, to working on some of the most ambitious projects in space. But let's start with your current role at NASA. What does Sandra Kaufman do all day? What does the Deputy Director of Astrophysics do? Well, the deputy of uh, astrophysics is a, um, I'm going to call it a bureaucrat at this stage, you know, working at, at NASA headquarters. Um, uh, we are responsible for the, all of the astrophysics missions uh, that we have in the agency, uh, Hubble Space uh, Telescope, uh, James Webb, uh, Fermi, Swift, uh, uh, all of the, the grand telescopes that are observing our universe in a variety of waves and wavelengths. Uh, so uh, um, we manage the budgets, we manage the, the workforce, uh, we, we manage the, the programs, the research programs, uh, and, uh, you know, of, um, and, and we work with all of the other centers in the agency that do astrophysics work. Mm. As we'll hear a lot this morning in these conversations, you know, a career in STEM requires a very strong STEM education, which has to start early. I mean, how early does it need to start? <laughs> I think it has to start since the home, since the, the, when they're little. Uh, when they're little, by the time, uh, uh, especially girls get to high school, get to college, things are formed, things are have evolved to the point that uh, you know they, they they want to pursue other careers. Uh, so if you start early and plant those seeds and show them that they can too be engineers, scientists, I think that, that it's an evolution that takes place. Um, it, it is just planting those seeds really, really early. And it doesn't matter whether the parents uh, have or not have a career, a degree, or anything. It does, you know, it, 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 my mother never finished high school, for example, right? Uh, so I think you have to start early. And, and it's not that we are good or bad at math is how much effort we want to put into learning the, the subject. I mean, you must hear girls say all the time, kids say all the time, I'm bad at math, I'm bad at this. It's like changing that mentality. Oh, I get that all the time. You know, it's like, well, I, I, I'm not good at math. And I try to tell them, you know, it, I wasn't particularly good at math, but I love science. And if I wanted to be an engineer or a physicist, I needed math. And uh, I don't want to admit it, but I will in public. I did uh, uh, fail two classes, and I had to take them again in order to become an engineer, right? Uh, so you just have to keep on trying. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to hear more about your early experiences. You mentioned your mother, and you give her so much credit for helping you get where you are today. As you said, she did not have a strong education. So what was it about your mother's ability to tell you that you could achieve these heights. What did she do? What can we learn from her? Well, my mother was self-made. She grew up an orphan. Uh, she didn't uh, have the opportunity to study. She, she rolled from a lot of places. She was totally self-made. Uh, and uh, she made a lot of mistakes uh, because she didn't have the guidance uh, from, from a father, from a mother. My grandmother died when she was seven. My grandfather died when she was nine. And uh, she was the youngest of 12, and you would think that the older siblings will take care of the little ones. Well, the last three little ones ended up going all kinds of places. And, um, you know, I think uh, she had to struggle so much 
she didn't want us to go through the same thing, so she always told us, you don't have to repeat history. You can be somebody, and I'm gonna do everything that I can so you don't have to go through what I went through. And um, so um, she really um, planted those seeds early on. You can be anything that you wanna be. Doesn't matter whether you're poor, doesn't matter whether, whether we come from Costa Rica, doesn't matter whether um, you know, I'm the one raising you and you don't have a father. Um, I, you can be somebody, and um, you know, and, and she was harping that on us all the time, you know. So it doesn't, like I said, you know, the, the parents don't have to have a degree, don't have to, you know. It's, it's how much the parents and the example that they lead. You know, she worked very hard to feed us. We 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 actually ended up rolling for quite some time, as well, you know, and uh, we lost everything. We ended up living in an office, uh, doing dishes in the sink and. Uh, uh, doing the laundry, you know, kneeling on the on the floor, but even though we were going through all those hardships, she was always looking up, and the glass was half full instead of half empty. And so it's just keeping is the attitude with which you you face the the calamities, you know, that life brings you. Did she instill in you a sense of curiosity? You know, you, you tell this great story about. Um, watching on TV the Apollo 11 moon landing, and you didn't have a TV. No, we had to go to a neighbor's house, uh, and she thought that was the greatest thing. Of course it was the greatest thing, you know? <laughs> Man landing on the moon, how cool is that, you know? And she wanted us to see it, so we went to a neighbor's house, and uh, that was, I mean, I was in awe, and I remembered exactly, you know, uh, where I was watching it. Uh, and uh, I told mom I wanted to go to the moon. I didn't know what NASA was at that time, you know. It was more you didn't like, know what NASA was? No, I didn't. I mean, seven years yeah. old, what the heck. I, I, I just knew that, that, that there would mean walking on the moon. That. Yeah, yes. I wanted to do that. And, uh, and she kept repeating that, you know, throughout my childhood and all that. You know, you want to go to the moon? Remember that? Uh, she uh, uh, made a big effort and, and bought me a couple of books uh, from Jules Verne, uh, From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, The Mysterious Island. There were some books that I read over and over again, and, and it was just like, uh, you know, I was always like, I want to do that. I want to do something like that, you know. And, and uh, you know, she would try to, um, you know, if, if she met somebody who was a, an engineer or somebody, she was like, I want you to talk to my daughter. I want you to, you know. And so she, she was always looking for ways to keep on watering that little seed, right? No, women remain underrepresented in physical sciences, <clears throat> computing, engineering, and for Latinas, the gap widens considerably. Um, I, I believe you told me that you are the fifth uh, uh, Latina in executive. I, I believe it's been five of us. Uh, you know, at the executive we level, at the executive NASA. level, senior executive service level. Yeah, I, I believe I'm the fifth uh, Latina woman at NASA, who holds a, a senior executive level position. Yeah. I, I have to confirm the numbers, but I, I was told that I was the fifth, yeah. Regardless, a, hand, a handful. We can count handful, them on our hands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, what can institutions like NASA do? Because we've talked about how early education is so important, but what can institutions do to help try to narrow that gap? Well, I mean, NASA is doing a lot of things. We have a lot of uh, diversity programs. Uh, we are promoting uh, diversity in the STEM, uh, in, in fact, in, in, in research programs. We want to make sure that, uh, that um, you know, people across the United States who are working uh, in, in, in NASA projects and programs uh, are of diverse backgrounds. 
um, when we do panels, you know, we, we do blind panels, you know, make sure that we take away the, the names and the, and, and the, the people. And, and we have found that uh, uh, more diversity bubbles up uh, when, when, when we do the, the blind panels, you know, so it's, it's been good. And, um, you know, uh, NASA's been the best place to work in government for the last nine years. And, uh, and, and it, it all is conducive to, to the, diverse, the diversity, the, the, what we want are the brains of the people, not what they look like, right? And, uh, and, and they're really emphasizing the fact that uh, we want to hear all voices, that we want to make sure that, uh, um, you know, that, that, that we have, um, you know, people like me in, in, in positions that are, you know, heard, that, that we are contributing. So, uh, you know, we, we, we really are doing everything that we can, uh, also with universities and, and programs to bring little, uh, little girls, high school, college students into the STEM population because it is what feeds, you know, the, the workforce. Tell us more about that feeder system. What do you see that, um, you <clears throat> talked about the role of parents and encouraging kids, but what can schools be doing? What can programs be doing to try to inspire and show kids that they can be part of STEM? Well, it's the same thing. You know, it starts with home, it starts with the schools. Teachers can also contribute to plant those seeds in, in little kids, uh, encourage them to, uh, you know, show them that, that, you know, careers in STEM are not as scary. They're fun. There is so much fun into, you know, working with your hands, uh, working with your brain, uh, to being creative, uh, working in groups because it is important for the work that we do. You know, in the STEM, you know, you, nobody can say I did that. You know, it is a group effort. It is a, uh, you know, in, and uh, you know, working alongside people that that uh, you know from other backgrounds is so enriching too. You know, so from from the time they're little, high school, you know, encourage the, the, the fact that, you know, those things are fun, they're not as scary, and, uh, and, and try to mentor the, the kids who are probably, you know, don't like, you know, the math or don't like the physics, but try to encourage them that, you know, it is fun and, and, and it's okay if they don't want to be an engineer or a scientist, but, uh, but knowing math and knowing uh, science is, it's important, you know, for the future as well, you know, so. Sandra, I have uh, some little people at home and to see their curiosity and to see mm -hmm. the way that you talk about it in terms of problem solving and figuring things out is so exciting, but there does seem to be something that happens as, as kids age where that curiosity can disappear and become sort of more rigid. Do, do, do you see a transition period where, I mean, we all, we're all kind of all scientists when we're little, right? What happens as kids get older where they lose that vision that, because you and your mom were able to hang on to that vision that you could be part of space. But what, did you, what were you able to do that other families lose? I, I, I honestly don't, don't know how to answer that. I, I know what happened in my house. I know how I raised my kids. I kept on motivating them to pursue uh, what their passion was. You know, I, I didn't want my kids to, to follow exactly on my footsteps. I wanted them to follow on what they thought was what they liked. You know, my older son ended up uh, with an undergraduate in psychology. Uh, he's got a PhD in human factors and applied cognition now. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit sciencey. And, and now his title is aerospace engineer. Don't ask me how that happened. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, uh, um, you know, it, it is to 
keep on motivating the kids. But uh, I, the school system sometimes also discourages uh, some things, that, and some teachers think that they need to have money in order to bring things to the, to, to the schools for them to be able to do something STEM-related. But you know, sometimes all it, all it takes is a, a, a teacher who cares about a student and keep on motivating them in order to pursue um, their passion. I mean, my, my teachers, when I was in elementary school, didn't have the resources. Um, but my teacher, my elementary school teacher, was really uh, good at, you know, this is fun, you know, apply yourself, uh, do the best job that you can always. Uh, in, in high school, you know, my math teacher instilled so much fun in math, you know, and I wasn't particularly good, like I said before, but I, but I, I fell in love with math and physics. Uh, you know, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's sometimes, you know, you, we want the tools, of course, but, uh, but if you don't have those tools, there are other ways in which you can continue to motivate the, the students. And I just want to share some more statistics. A Pew Research Center study shows that Latinos make up 17% of the U.S. workforce, but only 8% of people working in STEM fields. We talked about education. You've touched on mentorship a little bit. How key is mentorship, and what do you try to do, because you, you go to other countries and talk about your experience and your background to show people an example of what a strong, successful Latina in STEM can be. Mentoring is so critical and so important, uh, but mentors are not gonna land on your lap. You have to go out and find them. And uh, I learned early on, you know, and, and again, you know, going back to my mother, you know, if she met somebody, can you talk to my daughter? Can you, you know? So she was, she was trying to help me there. But then I learned early on that, uh, you know, I had to go and find those people myself. And, um, you know, eventually I ended up with, you know, two or three, four mentors. And uh, I learned early on that I wanted to find people who do not look like me at all. Somebody who, who will think differently than me, because we all have blind spots. And we want, I wanted somebody who could hear me out and help me find my way. Again, you know, you gotta help your kids uh, or anybody that you're mentoring find their own way. It's not for you to mentor them and tell them what to do, but through conversations, to, through, through the dialogue, is help them find their way. And, and, uh, and that's what I have always seeked on my mentors. I've always had male mentors until a couple of years ago that I finally had a female mentor and she was awesome. Uh, but you know, there were not, not many women uh, when I was growing up at, at NASA, right? So. I want to pivot to Mars. Um, one of your best known achievements is the mission to Mars uh, via MAVEN, the spacecraft named MAVEN. And you were the deputy project manager. So I I'd love to hear what, what we learned from that trip. I mean, it must have been incredible to be a part of, but what did we learn from it? Oh my God, that mission was outstanding. Uh, of course, the teams, uh, the team makes the, the the experience, right, and we're still in touch, and, and, and it's, it, it was awesome. But um, uh, we launched it in 2013, arrived in Mars uh, in 2014, it took 10 months, uh, and the, the purpose was to understand the mechanisms and processes that are occurring on Mars' atmosphere, and why, um, you know, that, that contribute to Mars losing its atmosphere to space. Uh, so we uh, put uh, several instruments on board uh, that, that uh, look at the sun's impact on the atmosphere, looks at uh, the processes that are occurring in the atmosphere, and um, what are the, the chemical components uh, in the atmosphere. So through all these eight years that the satellite has been operating, we have been um, measuring the, the escape rates 
uh, to space. Um, we extrapolated those rates four billion years ago, and uh, we, we know that Mars uh, had an atmosphere probably as thick as Earth's. Uh, that probably had uh, water on the surface that, uh, you know, we see uh, signs of, uh, you know, rivers, lakes, um, you know, so could, could Mars have harbored life in, in the past? Uh, I, I don't know, I don't know, the, nobody knows the answer to that, uh, but we have um, a perseverance right now on this little crater uh, and is collecting some samples, leaving them there uh, for the next mission, the Mars sample return to bring them to Earth. Uh, so can, we can actually look under a microscope and see those samples and see even if it, there is a, a, a fossil of an, a bacteria, an amoeba or, or something, could give us a view of, of whether Mars could have harbored life, you know, in, in the past. And uh, it, may be, it may be give us a little bit of understanding that we may, maybe we are not so unique. And, and through astrophysics, uh, my work is also looking at planets uh, around other solar systems, and uh, so we have uh, this, uh, discovered a, a large number of planets around other solar systems. And um, um, I guess as of October, we have 5,084 confirmed exoplanets around uh, other solar systems. You know, so um, it, it, you know the, the ultimate goal is to find if we if we are alone in the universe, right, or if we are unique. So, Sandra, you have said that a piece of you and a piece of Costa Rica, where you're from, uh, traveled to Mars to orbit yeah. the red planet. Do you feel that connection? I do, yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I was the only Costa Rican working on that mission. I touched that satellite so many times. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and then um, going to the launch pad the night before and, and saying goodbye, you know, and knowing that it's, it's going, it's, it's like a part of the family, if you will, you know. Um, it is now orbiting Mars, and it's been there for a while, and it's gonna continue for a couple more years, and uh, yeah, a little piece of Costa Rica is, is out there, yeah. yeah. Finally, I mean, we only have two minutes left, but tell us about what you're excited about that NASA's doing right now. Oh my gosh, and, you know, so NASA, uh, again. Besides looking for life, yeah. on, you know, besides that, that, small, <laughs> that, that small thing. Yeah, you know, so right now we are assessing all of the, the processes, the procurement, uh, the, the research programs uh, to make sure that, that, that we are fair and, and diverse. Um, and uh, I have to admit that, uh, you know, 31 years ago when I began working at NASA, um, that was, uh, uh, wasn't as strong as it is now, but now there is a really concerted effort uh, on NASA's part to, 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 to bring the inclusivity piece, which is now one of our core values, and uh, make sure that, that, that we are the, not only uh, you know, diverse, uh, but inclusive, and, and it's this idea, idea, right? Inclusivity, diversity, equity, and, and accessibility uh, that, that we are working so hard in making sure that, uh, that, that all of our population is cared for, uh, heard, uh, and that we can attract the best and brightest from, from, from our, the communities that, that um, you know, colleges, high schools. Uh, so part of my job that I've been trying to do is to go out there also and, uh, and spread the, the, the word, you know, to, to high schools and colleges, elementary schools, uh, that yes, you too can be a scientist or an engineer or whatever you want to be, you know, but put it in your mind and, and work 
towards that dream. Uh, and um, you too can make it come true, right, if you try hard enough. It's so exciting to think about young people having that world expanded, but what does it give to NASA and to the work that you do to have a diverse workforce? Well, because NASA is not just the employees that we have at NASA, right? We have a lot of contracting companies across the, 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 the United States. We work with many agencies across the world uh, who also are the diverse. And, uh, you know, and so we are all contributing uh, to the space mission, even though we're not direct employees of the agency. So we want, I want the best universities to produce, you know, the, the good STEM engineers and, and scientists. Um, I want to work with the international the space agencies that also have a diverse population. Um, companies, you know, contracts that we award, you know, so it behooves us to continue our mission in, in, in promoting uh, diversity in STEM, you know, across the world. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sandra Kaufman, Deputy Director of Astrophysics at NASA. Thank you for joining Which us today. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> And uh, my colleague Francis Steed Sellers will be out in just a moment with our next guest. Hello and welcome again. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. We're going to be talking about uh, STEM and the, and the talent pipeline, strengthening that talent pipeline, pipeline. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Lu Duong, who is the director at UNCF, and Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, who's the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. So a very warm welcome to you both to this great forum. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Nicole, I'd love to start with you and to talk about the, the digital divide. It became so clear during the pandemic, but of course it existed beforehand. Tell us about it and its impact on this very key area of STEM. So thanks for asking that question, Francis. I think we all realize that we have had digital disparities for quite some time. I mean, this is not a new mm -hmm. phenomena in terms of you know, people not being uh, equitably connected to the internet or to some type of hardware that allows them to engage online services. And I think what happened during the pandemic, the digital divide that existed prior to the pandemic just became much more amplified. And it became amplified around this subject because young people, I mean, children from 195,000 school districts, you know, 50 million, million school-age kids from public and private schools had to stay home. Now, I had a couple stay home. I'm not going to comment on that experience. <laughs> But I do know we had several ways to connect. I was able to work you know, remotely while my children in different grades were able to go into different rooms. That was not the case for many low-income students, and it wasn't the case for many rural students. Across rural America, we actually found the majority of those young people did not have access to technology. I'm finishing up a manuscript. I went to a place called Marion, Alabama prior to the pandemic. They had iPads for all 700 students in this K-12 school. During the pandemic, the principal stated, having an iPad was like having a book without paper because these young people were not able to connect. Mm -hmm. When we also looked at urban communities, particularly those that were impoverished, the majority of low-income students, particularly students of color, had parents who had to go to work. They were frontline workers, they were our delivery drivers, they were clerks, they were our nurses. In those households, not only was there a challenge when it came to hardware, we had several kids sharing hardware, we also had older students serving as the teacher. 
My point is, when you have digital disparities and you talk about STEM education, people cannot be what they cannot see. And challenge that we had during the pandemic that was already in existence prior to that period were young people who did not have the tools. They lack the hardware, the connectivity to envision themselves outside of their you know, physical environment. So I'm gonna come back to K-12 and learn more about this in a minute. It's so interesting. And I want to ask Lou a little bit about the other end of, of the spectrum. You work on taking kids from HBCUs onto Silicon Valley. How is Silicon Valley adjusting and diversifying? And are you seeing the results you need to see on that end of the spectrum? We have at UNCF invested heavily um, in our work with Silicon Valley. We still have a very, very long way to go. Uh, we have invested with partners that include Wells Fargo and Google and other areas of Ventu Foundation to launch uh, the HBCU Innovation Summit. HBCU stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And what we found when we launched this program under Dr. Chad Walmack in around 2015 is we were sending upwards of 175 HBCU students directly to Silicon Valley over a four-day experience. So they would meet with all the top tech companies. What we found for the tech companies was that this was a win-win for them. They no longer had to deploy recruiting teams outward across the country and fan outwards. We were literally bringing the best and brightest computer science students, IT students, to their front doorstep. We yielded tremendous results. We had upwards of 40, 45% on the spot internship and job offer. So we know the talent is there. However, where the disconnect is, once they enter companies in technology, and this is not immune solely to Silicon Valley, there's no structural mechanism in place to support these students once they get there, huh. right? So you may have a super talented student from a small historically black college university making their way out to Silicon Valley for the very first time at a top tech company, but once they get there, all of a sudden they're in a pool of talented computer scientists who have attended top Ivy League institutions. We are doing our best now to work with these tech companies to extend the time horizon in terms of a learning curve that should be afforded to these students to get them on, to get them on board. So for example, the, the opportunities for a computer science student at Carnegie Mellon is going to look vastly different from a student studying at a small HBCU in the South. And we want to even that playing field. So we are making inroads. We have a lot of work to do but we're going in the right direction. So, so how do you measure success? How do you know? I mean, you have these anecdotal reports of kids feeling, I guess, lost once they've moved into these companies. But just quickly, how do you get a sense of what's working and what you need to do next and how you measure it? We do extensive serving at UNCF. Oh. Our Frederick Douglass Passion Research Institute, as well as our own internal team, um, under Dr. Chad Womack for the, for the tech division, extensively surveys our students who graduate and go on into the Valley and other areas. I included Atlanta and Seattle, all the other major tech hubs. What we do know is that there are a significant number of students after year two or three that drop out and pursue mm. other career opportunities. And what a shame is that? Right. Because you have extremely talented individuals um, that are doing their absolute best, but once they get there, they might not be paired up with an individual at that company that understands the background in which they've come from 
and how they might need a little bit more of a platform to ramp up. So let's talk, Nicole, about building that platform in the K-12 area. Are public schools doing what they need to do to prepare kids for what are essentially lucrative and stable careers in the STEM areas? Yeah, and if I can, also, Francis, just to sort of tag on to what Lou said as well. I mean, this is a real phenomena. Um, we did a panel not too long ago <clears> on this topic where the loneliness and isolation that happens, particularly from historically black colleges and Hispanic-serving institutions that, by the way, graduate the highest number of engineers and STEM professionals. So we're not talking about young people that do not come out of environments where they don't know how to do this stuff, but they go into environments where they're lonely and they don't have the mentorship and the uh, networks to actually be successful. It's, it's, you know, we used to say back in the days, you didn't want to go to Silicon Valley if you're a person like me who likes to get your hair done. You didn't know if you were going to buy a hairdresser <laughs> or if you were going to have the right uh, social network as a you know, young black woman going to Menlo Park. But nowadays, you know, remote and virtual has changed the game and we still see young people not being recruited. What that also means is where does it start to your question? Right. And it starts at you know, preschool education. Uh, there are statistics that say for black boys in particular that they need to be exposed to science, technology, engineering, and math by third grade. If they lose that enthusiasm, you have another chance, right, in 10th mm -hmm. grade to actually bring them back. If they lose that enthusiasm, we actually have a third chance, and that would be in the first year of college. But we find that they're just unable to stay connected for the very reasons that they experience those struggles in the professional world. And so, you know, how you build that pipeline is first and foremost, we have to recognize that STEM has an A in it, and it's called the arts. Um, and so there are young people who may not be mathematically inclined, but can intersect the humanities and social sciences. Uh, we have this new career that I didn't have when I was in school called data science, where you can actually manipulate information. You don't have to be like most of us. Why am I taking algebra and calculus, you know? You're actually living in a world where science is organically embedded. And I would say in those experiences, that captures the imagination of young people, particularly those without the resources to go beyond you know, their physical domains. Can I just so riff off of? You, absolutely, Dr. I had Turnley. a question for you. So about <clears throat> Dr. Turnley, actually, we both served on a panel a few months ago, and it's such a pleasure to sit here beside her because every time <laughs> I walk away from a talk with her, I feel like I've gotten a master class. <laughs> so thank you, Dr. Turnley, it's always but a pleasure. But you've got some master class here, man. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, just to, just to you know, riff off of, Dr. Turner-Lee, you know, at, at UNCF, we have, this is our bread and butter, right? So we have researched the topic of reduced participation numbers of minorities in STEM for decades now through available, available data and literature, much of which is Department of Education. Um, what we found is that there are inherent structural challenges that exist, clearly as Dr. Turner-Lee shared specifically within the K through 12 pipeline. Where we have been focused, a lot of our efforts into, is understanding what happens in the high school area. And if you look at the lower income areas, which disproportionately have uh, the African American population as well as the Hispanic community, in much of these low income neighborhoods and areas, in these high schools, they're not offered advanced mathematics and science courses. Right. thereby diminishing their right. likelihood of success once they enroll in college and take college-level math science. So for those of us who had the privilege of going to college, 
We know when you go into Bio 101, Chem 101, Calc 101, you might be in a class of 500 students upwards, right? And in that situation, if you're not prepared, that's the majority of where our, stu our minority students fall out of the pipeline, year one and year two. If you go back a little bit further into the early formative years from age 11, 12, 13, 14, what we know in lower income areas is that these students don't have the access points to develop healthy, positive relationships with aspirational role models in STEM. They could be doctors, they could be engineers, they could be teachers, and more specifically, that look like them yes. and come from their own communities. And once again, we are, we are not setting up our students for success because we're not addressing structural inherent challenges and mechanisms that we should be doing. Mm -hmm. So Nicole, let's talk about policy. Mm -hmm. The Biden administration has made a, uh, an effort to level the playing field. Is it enough? Is it taking the right approaches? You know, it is enough, and it is a very strong push. I mean, we've seen, and as a policymaker for decades, the push for computer science here in this country, right. and we've not necessarily availed to the types of aspirational goals that we have. So we have a lot more work to do, and I'm always excited when I hear a policymaker continue to prioritize STEM. Um, I just ran into a friend of mine who is uh, the STEM coordinator in space policy at the White House. So we have people thinking about the different verticals. We also have conversations going on now in STEM that uh, are bringing people without college degrees. There's a lot of work going on right now to engage people in the STEM fields that may be less technical, right? More supportive, more indirect. Uh, we've got an infrastructure bill that's gonna require a range of occupational skills from engineers and computer scientists to fiber installers who still need to know some type of code. Um, at Brookings, we're trying to work on what does that look like so that people have various entry points. I mean, I think going forward for us as a country, it, it's a combination of where do we position these skills in the everyday learning of young people. This is not a black, it's not a white, it's not a red, it's not a poor or rural or urban issue. This is a matter of global competitiveness. And that's why we tell people, for instance, you asked me that first question about the digital divide. Closing the divide is an issue of national and global competitiveness mm. for the US. When you can't see it or a person, it just impacts our ability to have folks flow into these vacant jobs. So we can push money into these policies, yes. into the initiatives. Talk to me a little bit more about the kind of cultural and sociological issues that underlie the, the ongoing divides. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's no secret that our kids of color and our kids who live in poor and rural areas are under attack. Education is under attack. We are putting out into this universe post-pandemic issues that are fueling the mental trauma that our young people have experienced. I mean, it's no secret that we just saw statistics that said American kids across the country have reduced reading and mathematical skills. Yeah. Um, and that's a challenge because we're now 10 points behind in many places simply because of the pandemic on top of the systemic inequalities. With that being the case, I like to consider it this way. And I'll just share really quickly my story. My dad was an architect engineer. My mother was a school teacher. You know, I grew up in an environment where we had educated parents. But my mother didn't like to do math. <laughs> she was real <laughs> clear about that. That was not what she did, was math. My dad, out of three girls, never got an engineer, never got an architect. My mother really never got a teacher, because I decided I didn't want to go teach. But when I had kids, I actually had to take this word no out of their vocabulary. The no about math is too hard. Listen, 
We can motivate our kids as much as we want. I've been there, I'm a parent. I've had to argue with many a math teacher who told me that my children cannot do this stuff. And I'm a middle class parent with a PhD. Right. What I'm suggesting is, this is all hands on deck. Everybody has to invest in a child. There should be no child left offline and there should be no child disconnected from the new economy. And that takes everybody. That doesn't take the young kid who's sitting there thinking, I may never go to college. Well, now you can or you can go into certification. But it also takes, I'm sorry to say it, some of our dominant teachers who are telling those same kids that they can't do this. It's an all hands on deck strategy if we're going to change the curve. And it's not always just the hard structural issues that we're also dealing with this behavioral. So, so many key points there. And Lou, talk to, the, to me about this. What can public policy achieve and not achieve at the HBCU level? Where did, what's the role? So, you know, Dr. Ternally uh, illuminated uh, this topic earlier in the conversation. HBCUs produce 25% of all black STEM graduates. And if I'm not mistaken, they produce half of, of all terminal degrees uh, for, for, for women at the PhD level. Mm. We need more investment in our historically black colleges and universities. And I'd like to give an example because this, this, this go, you know, it's, diversity has been, as Dr. Turnley just shared, such a, I don't understand why, but a polarizing and divisive issue. Don't you want a maximum competitive pool of citizenry in this economy and country? You know, they, we are being challenged now, like never before by other nation states, for global economic dominance. And we can't seem to understand why it wouldn't behoove us to make sure that every citizen in this country is trained up, especially in advanced knowledge in STEM, which now drives the world economy, although it might only represent 5% of all jobs in the US. It drives the economy from technology to biopharm, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So for us, uh, for us, Francis, you know, our, our CEO, Dr. Michael Lomax, is working incredibly hard with the Hill to continue to increase and ramp up our investments, uh, as well as infrastructure building, capacity building with our historically black colleges because they play such an important role. And I just want to share this one important kind of anecdotal uh, story. In our program with the Funtu Foundation UNCF STEM Scholars Program, we had a student who, on her second day of a college campus at an Ivy League institution in Boston, uh, she contacted us in absolute tears and said, uh, and Dr. Turner Lee knows the story, I've shared this with her. She said that she was followed by a group of white students to her, to her dorm, and they were shouting the N-word at her and her friend. And she was in absolute tears, and she asked us, what support services can she get? And in this case, it was tutoring because she didn't want to be seen as that one dumb black kid going to the academic resource or support center on her campus. So let's just take politics out of this. Yeah. Let's just take this back to a human level. Yeah. Imagine if that was your second day on campus, regardless of your race, and that was your experience and how that might now impact your point of view of what your experience will be like on that campus. Mm -hmm. And so like Dr. Tony Lee said, our, stu our minority students are under attack. Um, this is fact. And we have to put 
the structural mechanisms in place to ensure that they feel as supported, valued, and seen as possible. That's right. So that brings me to a last question. I'm afraid it has to be a quick one, but maybe you can both take it. The importance of mentorship, mm -hmm. so that there are other people that these lonely students see as they move on. What does it mean for you? And I'm afraid we have to keep it. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that in addition to, again, addressing both the structural and the non-structural uh, battles that many folks who enter the STEM field face from early childhood to when they get there, you know, we have a lot more work to do, and I think policymakers are doing the best they can to pivot resources where they can without over, you know, extending themselves. With regards to mentorship, we have great organizations that are actually doing this. You know, the uh, National Association of Black Engineers is out there, NSBE, Society of Black Engineers. We've got inroads. We've got STEM academies that are bustling up. We've got, you know, uh, the HBCU networks. The key thing is we have to develop an ecosystem. If we're actually going to extend this in a way that it makes sense, this is about ecosystem building. This is a no, great yeah, it's, message. It's, that's and right. I'm going to have to cut you short, but <laughs> develop the ecosystem. And, and that's such a key, key message for you both to end on. I want to thank you both for joining us today. Lou and Nicole, thank you for joining thank us at you. Washington Post Live. Thank you. It was such an honor to have you. And I'm going to be back soon, so please stay with us. And we'll carry on with more of this important conversation. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. My name is Lana Wong, and I'm excited that we have Jomi here today, who you saw on the video. But before we dive into this important conversation on shaping the future of STEM, let me just set the scene with some statistics that I think really illustrate why it's so critical that we create more, more and more opportunities for girls and diverse students in STEM. So according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, the US alone will need more than 1 million more STEM workers by 2030. The US Census data from last year show that women are nearly half of the US workforce, but only 27% of STEM workers. And finally, data from the National Science Foundation show that underrepresented minorities are earning just 24% of science and engineering bachelor's degrees, 22% of master's, and just only 13.6% doctorates. So internships, or work-based learning, are one ways that companies are reaching out to young women and diverse students interested in STEM, and that's what we're here to unpack today. So we have with us today Jomi Babatunde Amoya, an Abbott STEM intern who you just saw on the video. She's an avid runner, but she also does play the violin and the viola. And we have Dr. Beth McQuiston, a neurologist and the medical director of Abbott's Diagnostics Division. And she is also the lead inventor of over 30 patents. And we have Dr. Joe Weber, the CEO of STEM Connector, who, by the way, also has a PhD in quantum physics. So I think you'll all agree, we do need the best and the brightest minds to create the life-changing technologies for the future. So let's start with our star Abbott intern, Jomi. So Jomi, we saw you on the video uh, that was during your high school years, but now she is a sophomore. You're a sophomore at Northwestern University. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and uh, really, we'd love to just have you share your story with us. Thank you, Anna. Yes, that video was back when I was 16, and it just feels so amazing to see the journey now four years later. And I would say my story really begins when I was four years old and my parents moved here to America from Nigeria to give me and my younger brothers more opportunities. 
And from a young age, I absolutely loved math and science. It were the two subjects I found the most interesting and fascinating. So when I got into high school, I really wanted to start pursuing higher level STEM courses to really push myself. And that's when I really started noticing the lack of representation. Um, in my classes, I would be one of the few girls, if not the only woman of color. And it always constantly felt like my intelligence was questioned. And then, so my sophomore year, I got the opportunity to apply for the Abbott internship program, and I got it. And it honestly completely changed my life. Um, I got to work on hands-on experience and projects, in addition to meeting other female scientists and engineers like Beth herself, who really pushed me and showed me that I could succeed in this field. And for me, I feel like one of the reasons girls my age, when I was really young, don't feel like they can excel is because they're not exposed to it and they don't have the opportunities and resources to get there. And I feel like it's really internships like this one at Abbott that can really change the trajectory of someone's life. If it wasn't for the Abbott internship program, I honestly wouldn't know where I would be today. Wow, that's amazing. And how amazing that Beth, one of your mentors, is here to hear you say that. So, so Beth, you've worked with a lot of the high school interns. Can you tell us more about the impact that you've seen on the students that you've worked with? Yes, well, it goes both ways. So we have the opportunity to work with such bright young minds that bring phenomenal ideas to us. And then we're able to help mentor and train and expose these bright minds to so many different areas of science. So it's, it's really something that we benefit from as well as they do. And for example, another intern that I had, we had them working on global neuroscience translational research developing a blood test to evaluate the brain. So we really make sure that these brilliant, talented, wonderful young women can see what they want to do. You know, you don't know until you try different things if it's going to be the thing that you absolutely love. Fantastic, no, great mentorship, great exposure. So let me turn to Joe. What can you tell us about Abbott's approach Yes, the research shows us that internships and work-related experiences really help young people develop core, what I'd call soft skills, things like communication, teamwork, networking, and professionalism. And the internship program at Abbott um, is all about real-world experience. Um, it's not your old internships where you used to have to make the coffee. You didn't make any coffee, did you? No, no coffee. No coffee no. was made. So this is real on-the-job learning. And clearly the girls benefit greatly from this, but Abbott also benefits from this. Mm -hmm. Abbott has been running this internship program now for a decade. And over that time, 60% of the interns have come from diverse backgrounds. And an amazing 95% of the Abbott interns go on to either study for a STEM course at university or college, or they go into a STEM career. So it's, we can see the program is working. And I think programs like this from Abbott, it's a really high impact strategy, and it helps Abbott build a diverse and robust STEM workforce. One thing I'd like to just mention is Abbott working with STEM Connector, my company, we put out a blueprint, which is kind of like a, a how-to guide on how for a corporation like Abbott to set up an internship program. 
And I think it's excellent. A uh, large number of people at Abbott worked on this. And there's a lot of things in there you maybe don't always think about. Like Abbott, for instance, will bus the students in because the students can't drive and they may not be able to get there. Abbott will give you five shirts because you may not have been used to having to wear more professional attire. So Abbott really enables, and I just think it's a, a phenomenal program. You can get the blueprint at um, stem.abbott.com. Great, great. So Jomi, let's, let's turn to you. Can you tell us a bit about an internship assignment that you've had at Abbott, and how does it compare with what you're doing now in college? Yes, so my first summer, I got the opportunity to actually work with one of the hard stents that Abbott made. I worked with like a team of engineers and we were working on the design. And then in addition, my manager let me go into the lab and I got to work with some of the mechanical heart valves and how they were made. It was such a cool experience because it really got me fascinated about medical devices. Like I found it so cool how these like tiny, tiny devices could save someone's life. And from there, um, at the end of the summer, I got to give like a presentation to my manager, leaders at Abbott, and also my parents about all the cool things I did. And I just remember being up there and being like, I like did all of this. And if I can do this, I can literally do anything in STEM. <laughs> and it was just such an amazing experience. And then going back to the classroom, it just added this like level of confidence. And it just made me really believe in myself and know that this was a field that I truly belonged in. And now in my college classes, when I like am working on math problems, I can see the bigger picture. And I know that these are skills that I can actually apply into the real world to help make people's lives better, which is why I want to become an engineer. Fantastic. This is just a win-win situation all around. So Joe, from what you've just heard, do you think that Joe, Jomi will be prepared for a career in the future STEM workforce? <laughs> Absolutely. Kind of a no-brainer, right? Yes, yeah, a no-brainer. We, we'd hire her tomorrow, but Abbott would kill me. But. <laughs> great, great. And then Beth, what are your thoughts on improving the STEM career opportunities for women? Oh, I think it's all about exposing people to different areas. I started off as a dietitian, which I still love, and then I graduated into neuroscience. I'm a neuroscientist, I'm a neurologist, but I didn't know. Because, so it's really about getting kids in front of every opportunity, because you don't know what's gonna hit and what's gonna land for them and what their true passion is going to be. And you can do this every day. You can do it, uh, for example, I had to have my air conditioner replaced out recently over the summer, and I had my daughter go work with the gentleman that was putting that together, and he was showing her about compressors and condensers and all kinds of different things. There's science all around us, and it's extremely exciting. You know, why does toast smell good? That's food science, <laughs> right? What's happening? You know, what's happening in your garden? Uh, why does, it, I heard earlier talking about um, girls, as they go to high school and college, maybe their focus shifts, but science is everywhere. Makeup, for example. How do you make makeup? How do you make <laughs> lipstick that stays on? Science is a thrilling and it is exciting. And I also wanted to quote the, the NASA scientist earlier, and she said her mom, right? So it's your parents, your loved ones, talking to your friends, talking to your neighbors. Hey, would you mind talking to my daughter about what you do? because maybe they want to be a nuclear physicist, maybe they want to be a quantum mechanics scientist, maybe they want to be an engineer or a brain doctor. They don't know until they are exposed to it. So exposure. Exposure, yeah, fantastic. 
And so, Joe, back to you. You have a bit of a wider view. Uh, what other tactics do you see companies and organizations taking to address this issue, and what do you think they can do more or less of? Yeah, it's, um, it's currently estimated that 65% of preschoolers will go into jobs that don't currently exist. So if you think about that for a moment, it just shows how constantly changing the whole job landscape is. And it's so important for us, I think, you know, as Beth has been saying, to really try and expose the opportunities so people can see that these opportunities are available. Um, it's also somewhat selfish. You know, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, who you just had on, um, she spoke about national security. And this is a matter of national security. There's almost zero unemployment in cybersecurity. We just can't get enough people. So we see this, and we see companies that we work with at STEM Connector, and I'll give you a few examples. Um, Micron, one of the leading semiconductor companies, they run a summer program for eight, kids entering eighth and ninth grade. Um, and the kids get to kind of work alongside engineers and scientists and see what it's like to actually work in a semiconductor, in the semiconductor industry. Um, over the past summer, over two-thirds of the students were non-white and a third were female. Um, we also, we worked with Olay earlier this year, really exciting program where we took some of their scientists, female scientists, and also some, a lady from Lockheed Martin who works on space travel, which is pretty cool. And um, we put them in front of uh, a thousand students across 42 states. And for Olay, they wanted to really go for 15-year-old girls because Olay knows that's the age at which girls tend to drop out of STEM. And last example I'll give you is NASA. You just had NASA on earlier. And uh, you know we worked with NASA, and we actually took a virtual program where we took NASA female scientists in front of 10,000 Title I schools across, sorry, 10,000 kids from Title I schools across the United States. And going into it, the kids were like, NASA, astronauts. And then we, after we put one young woman up there, and she worked on the backpack systems that powered life support for the astronauts, um, we received a letter from one of the teachers. And the teacher said, I don't know how many of those backpack engineers NASA needs, but I've got 300 kids that all want that job. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's all about helping connect the dots, really, isn't it? From education you know, to careers and seeing what you, can, what you can do. Fantastic. Great. So Beth, you mentioned parents. But what can parents and teachers do? And what can students and, and women do? Mm -hmm. I think look out for each other, exposure. And I'm going to also quote the earlier lecture and say, ask. If you don't ask, you don't get. So try to get as many exposures as you can. And for parents, encourage your kids. And yeah, there might be setbacks. Nobody gets it 100% out of the gate. One of the best things you can do is say, OK, maybe you didn't get that right, but it was a learning experience and keep going. So instilling the knowledge that you don't always get a home run, but you learn and you keep going. It's not always about being the smartest or the best. It's about grit. It's about determination. And it's about passion. If you have that, you absolutely will succeed. Absolutely. You can do it, and you will. Great messaging. And so, Jomi, we're going to close with you. What's next for you with school and internships? And what kind of advice might you have for other young women like yourself? 
So it's been amazing because I've been able to do so many internships for Abbott and get all this experience. So I'm still like figuring out what kind of engineer I really want to be, but it's made it so much easier to know what direction I want to go in. And I would say like I'm an avid runner, so I'm super passionate about fitness tech and also just preventative healthcare and how to make sure that we can get people the information they need before their health issues get really bad. And to any girl out there who really wants to pursue STEM, I would just say go for it. Like you can always do it. Never ever doubt yourself. And find mentors who can support you. And just know that like me and all these amazing women of STEM up here are like behind you and they're supporting you all the way through. So you got this, you can do this, and I 100% believe in you. Fantastic, what a rock star. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I am honored to share the stage with these smart and inspiring women. So thank you for what you're doing to try and diversify the STEM workforce. Thank you all for joining. And now we'll hand it back to our colleagues at the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello, and for those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Diedstel as a senior writer here at the Washington Post. What an inspiring morning. I'm pleased to be joined now by President Valerie Shears Ashby, the incoming president or the new president of the University of Maryland at Baltimore County, UMBC. Dr. Shears Ashby, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here. Well, we're just delighted and it's such a wonderful way to, to round out this morning. We're going to be talking about UMBC and its background and where you want to take it, but I'd love to ask first a little bit about your own background as a chemist and an educator. Sure, sure. So I, uh, I knew that I wanted to be a chemist um, when I had a great chemistry high school teacher. Huh. So important. It is that so teacher. very important. And my father was also a math and science teacher, so right. I was inspired by that and never actually feared math or science. I always mm -hmm. thought it was fun, and he made it such. Um, and so I had that experience of having that background, but I also found um, just my intellectual curiosity was spawned uh, in chemistry. The first time I made a oh. compound with my own hands uh, that had never been made before in graduate school, that was a wonderful experience, and I wanted more. Um, <laughs> and I will tell you that I also had great mentors, and I have to always call two people's names. Uh, Hank Frierson, who was the first person who looked at me and said, you're going to get a PhD, and I think you can be a professor. Wow. And then my PhD wow. advisor, who taught me so many principles around mm. scholarship and research, mm. not the least of which is that um, you learn the most from the people with whom you have the least in common. And he built his scientific awesome. research group Right. on diversity um, and, and diversity of experiences, diversity yeah. of culture, uh, interdisciplinarity. All of that matters in being what, the most creative scholar and scientist that you can be. And so that's the kind of mentorship that I actually wow. had. So you came to UMBC from Duke, right? I did. Tell us a little bit about the, 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 the transition there from a very big southern university to yes. UMBC. Yes, well, I, I chose UMB, to go to UMBC. First of all, my experience at Duke was extraordinary. Right. Um, wonderful students, faculty, staff, and a wonderful environment in the South. I am a North Carolinian, and so it was a very comfortable <laughs> environment. Yeah. Uh, but when I moved and made that choice to go to UMBC, it is because, like Duke, UMBC had the values that were most important to me, and that is inclusive excellence. This is an institution that has become what it is over the last 56 years, 
built on inclusive excellence. We believe that if you're not diverse, you can't be excellent. So, and so that is a core value that I, I really have been guided by. So you mentioned two names that were very important. I want to yes. raise a, another one, Freeman Hrabowski, who was That's your predecessor, yes. <laughs> and possibly a mentor too, or a model. Certainly. Tell me about what he did at UMBC um, and what you've come in to yes. move ahead. So he set the standard that excellence requires inclusion. That's the first thing right. that he did. And he has built the university in that way. Um, we have a very diverse student body, and they're extraordinary students. Our students graduate, and they go on to some of the most impressive programs in graduate studies and uh, professional schools. They can go anywhere in the country and be successful. And that's the model that he set, a model of student success. Whereas uh, you heard as I was coming in, you know, we assume that the students are excellent, that they will be successful. And then the question is, how do we support and build that success with them as partners in their, in their growth? And so that's what he did. But let me tell you what he did for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I met Freeman uh, a little more than 10 years ago, about 10 years ago. And it was when the UNC Chapel Hill was seeking to model the Meyerhoff program, which right. is a national a model. scholarship program. Yes. Um, and we were one of the first institutions to do the Meyerhoff replication. And my president uh, at the chancellor at UNC Chapel Hill said, you must meet Freeman Rabowski. And I met to, went, to meet, went to meet Freeman. I sat in his office, the office that I now occupy, strangely. Wow. <laughs> Oddly, every day I think, am I really in this office? Um, and he said to me the first time he met me, he heard me talk about organic chemistry, how much I love teaching and research. And he looked at me and he said, you're going to be a university president. Interesting. And a decade later, I'm sitting in that office. Wow. And I had not even started down an administrative leadership path at that point. I think I was just about to become a department chair of chemistry. So you ask me about Freeman. That's what he does. Uh, that is a level of inspiration, seeing in people what they cannot see in themselves. That's what he does. But talk to me as well about some of the structural things, like the Meyerhoff mm -hmm. scholarships, because inspiration is one thing, but you need the roots prepared as well. Right. Tell us about those scholarships. I think they were started with a half million dollar grant, right? Not, yes. Not and a so huge the, amount of the money. The Meyerhoff program now has had some 1,600 students in it wow. over the course of its lifetime. <clears throat> and we've graduated, you know, 1,400, there are 1,400 alums. Uh, more than almost 400 of those students have gone on to get you know, MDs, MD, PhDs. Uh, this, is, this is the nature of our students. I, I think we have some 75 who've gotten MD, PhDs. Um, you know, and there's, there are always, there are about 300 students now in the pipeline getting graduate and professional degrees. But that whole program was built on a set of principles um, and best practices, like the investment in the students through peer mentoring and the cohort model and intense mentoring from faculty, and actually helping to set a standard of excellence where the faculty expect that the students are going to be successful. That's a part of that entire right. success model. Um, and so intense research experiences, that's also important. The moment that I did my first experience and I knew I was a chemist, there was nothing that could stop me. So hang on, you were 
you're now going to be leading this Meyerhoff scholarship yes. program, yes. but you're part of it as well. You benefited from so it. So or... I benefited um, from a, a model of that that was very similar at UNC Chapel Hill some 20 okay. years before. Um, but I also benefited in leading the Meyerhoff replication at UNC Chapel Hill, which okay. has been extraordinarily successful following those same principles that have been put in place. And now I have the opportunity to come back to UMBC and not lead the program. Let me be very clear. We have wonderful program directors, but just the institution where that, that model sits. So this model has been replicated. You mentioned one. I think Penn State been. has done something very similar as yes. well. Are there other examples around the country of this this mentoring and sort of um, this drive success that the, yes, the scholarships. Yes. So it has been recognized, the model has been recognized around the country and Chan Zuckerberg has uh, supported the Berkeley model and UCSF is also replicating this um, program. And so many other institutions are starting to do this work also. SUNY schools starting mm -hmm. to do this replication. There are many versions of it, by the way, outside of the Meyerhoff program. But there are a set of, of programmatic um, elements here that we really know are important for the success of the students. So when you look around and you see these other models, are they competitors? Or you're just thinking no. we're raising, we're no, no, raising no, 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 boats no. all together? OK, so, so I, uh, I am competitive, but not in this, <laughs> not in this particular I way. Know. <laughs> uh, I will tell you ways in which I am competitive. But this is not one of them. The stakes are too high. Right and the number of students too small. So I need everybody, every institution, right. to really support a diverse group of students in STEM. Mm. That is necessary. If everybody does it, we still will not have enough students right. for the next generation of creators and innovators. This is a, is a national issue. <laughs> And so while we will always want to be an institution where we can attract the world's best students, I need every institution to become that. And so any time that we can pilot something and then replicate it across the country, that to me is success. Um, yes. So when you look across the country again, you're seeing these other similar models, but are there any you look at now, and maybe even beyond this country, where you say, wow, I wish we could do that, or isn't that a good idea? It takes this Meyerhoff model, but to another sure. level. Sure, the, so the next level for me, when I think about this, so this is a, clearly focused on preparing undergraduates. Right. But when you think about where knowledge is actually created, it really happens more at the graduate level. So certainly our undergraduate students are participating in undergraduate research, but we have not yet nationally moved the needle on diversity in graduate education. So look at the number of underrepresented students and women in STEM fields getting doctoral degrees. The numbers are still very small. So are they, but are they going off to, we heard earlier on, going off to Silicon Valley and making much more money than if they stayed in academia? So is in that certain a, fields, a that is the case. Group? Yeah. But again, this is why we need all right. <laughs> universities to do this, because the numbers that we need in order to fill the diversity, right. you know, those who are participating in this who are diverse is significant. So there's certain fields where that is the case. In computing, I have to, you know, that is, if either you're a student who desires to be in academia or not, and it's okay, either way, you can contribute as a scholar in industry, you can contribute as a scholar in academia. Right. Um, but then there are other disciplines where that is not the, you know, there's not a push and pull there, and yet 
We have few numbers I can pick on my own discipline. Uh, we certainly have moved the needle, but the number of underrepresented students and women getting PhDs in chemistry is still very small. In physics, is still very small. In mathematics, it's still very small. And these are core disciplines to a number of the largest, most complex problems of our society. We need that diversity. So I was talking recently with, uh, or messaging with the president of, of Georgia Tech, and mm -hmm. he was talking about the things, the other disciplines we need to pay attention to, sociology, philosophy. Without a doubt. English, so how do you build that into this curriculum that focuses so much on STEM? Sure, so we are, you know, one of, one of the myths about UMBC is that we are just a STEM school, right. right? So first of all, there's no such thing for me as a liberal arts education that is just STEM. I don't know what that means, right? Uh, and it is really important to understand that this, the problems that our society faces, if you pick a problem, whether it's climate or the environment or privacy and security, um, the problem of what is truth, that's right. actually a STEM-based problem because of the impact of technology and, in that And the space. need to describe problems through narrative. We hear about narrative medicine, right? Without and, all of, with all, right? In all of those that. cases, the humanities and the social sciences play an important role. Right. Imagine not thinking about, think about those issues. Now, how are you going to solve problems without thinking about culture mm. and ethics mm. and language? How are you going to solve problems without thinking about economics and inequities and social determinants? How are we going to do that? The big problems in human health, how are you going to do that? And so it's, it's obvious. Look at COVID. We had, we had, right? right? If this was just a scientific problem, everybody would follow the science. Right. It is not the science. It is not. It is. <laughs> Or not. <laughs> or not. It is not just a scientific problem. Turns out it's a political issue. All right. Right? It Absolutely. is a trust issue for certain cultures who have had a history of not trusting science. Right. Right. So the problems are any problem that touches a human has to have a humanistic and social science approach attached to it, or else it's just, you know, it's not useful. So, so UMBC has built such a reputation for STEM. Yeah. Do students come in? knowing they want to go into those fields, do you think? Or Some do. Is, or is it a sort of transformation that happens yes. as they go along? Some do. Uh, this is a part of the beauty of being in higher education. Uh, when students come in the door, some think that they know who they're going to be when 20 years from now. Right? <laughs> and some have planned every step of that. right? Uh, and then others come in, and they are just curious, and they don't know. Uh, and the beauty is that if you actually have a, a, a curriculum and an environment that allows people to explore, right. then they will find their love, right? They will find their gifts, they will find their talents, and they will be able to make those changes as they go through their careers. I sat in a room yesterday with a number of honors students from UMBC, and I asked, how many of you are non-STEM majors? And it was beautiful. Um, I had philosophers who also wanted to major in chemistry, and I had artists who were interested in computer science, right? Those fields collide in beautiful ways. And then I had just pure humanists who wanted to be writers. 
So I keep asking you these UMBC questions, and it yeah. seems a little unfair since you've only been there for a few months. But about the network... 94 days, I believe. <laughs> if you want to, nobody's counting, but, but just about 94 days. I want days. to ask you about the network that UMBC has built um, on into careers and uh, in the yeah. rest of the world. What have you learned about that, and how do you propose to enhance it? I had the huge good fortune of interviewing Kizzy Corbett, one of your yes. graduates, uh, yes. uh, who was a one of the masterminds behind the COVID vaccines on Washington Post Live, but talk yeah. to us about the importance of those role models in the rest of the world and the networks you're building with companies and other institutions. Sure, sure. So, so that role model piece uh, is one that I really want to begin with here. Um, you, you know, as I was going through my career, I was always the only African-American in every chemistry department I've ever been in. The only African Only. Wow. When I started at UNC Chapel Hill in, on the faculty, my previous job at Iowa State University, every, every single Duke University, I was the only African-American faculty member. Mm. Now, we hired other people, right? We did, we did do better. Mm. Um, but that's just a note to myself that I, I did not see, rep, I wasn't seeing myself in the classroom, in the research, in, as a faculty member. And so when I stepped into the classroom for the first time to teach organic chemistry, my students, they saw me. And that was fascinating to me because I had never had any, I didn't have that. And so they, it's important, somebody said it to me yesterday as I was meeting with a group of students, she said it matters to me that my president is an African-American woman who's also a chemist. Right. She can see me. Right. So what I would say to you in that question, in thinking about people like Kizzy Corbett, it matters to my students and students all over the country that the person who is designing the COVID vaccine is an African-American woman from a small town in North Carolina. Right. Right. And it matters to my second Rhodes Scholar, who's, you know, that they can see my first Rhodes Scholar. That representation actually matters. And those students, by the way, who graduate from UMBC and many other students who've had a great mentoring experience, know that that is, that is, is an obligation to mentor the next group of students, to create access. Mm and guidance for the next group of students. It's really important. So that is perpetuating. And we have you know, now thousands of students out there in the world doing amazing things. And they never forget that it is an obligation to mention the next group of students. So interesting. I want to talk to you a little bit about front page news we have right now. Sure. We have a story on the front of the Washington Post about the potential for the Supreme Court to rule against yes. Race-conscious admissions in colleges. What do you think the impact could be, and how do you read uh, those? It uh, could stories? be significant. Um, I will tell you that I'm committed to access, and it is really important. And being clear on what access means is this, that's where people differ. Hmm. I remember the first time someone asked me about this when I was in my previous role. And they ask it as if to say to me, and they literally meant, so if this child gets in, my child loses his space. Right. Which said to me, you thought that space belonged to your child. Right. And so it's a, it's a fascinating question of access. And so when we talk about this, we have to go back to the what is the premise? If the premise is that it belongs to a certain group and others are taking their spaces, mm. then that is not really what we are, that's not real access. What we're now saying is that 
you know, we do learn the most from the people with whom we have the least in common. So if I'm going to give your child a great education, I need them to sit in a classroom that is economically diverse, that is racially and ethnically diverse, that is culturally diverse, that is religiously diverse, because I'm not giving your child the best education. And I think we're just coming to the fact that diversity equals excellence. That's a, a stunning message to finish on, diversity equals excellence. I think we've heard it during the day, but it was very, very nicely summed up there. Thank you. Dr. Valerie Shears-Ashby, thank you so much for joining us today on Washington Post Live. It's been an honor to have you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.